it's blown my mind what being bold and leading, you know, with with purpose and letting money follow has manifest in the journey of MA. You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. This is your host, Brady Burkett, and I'm joined today by Brandon DeWitt, co-founder of MX. Brandon, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Brandon, if you wouldn't mind uh, kicking off the conversation today, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background before co-founding MX? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I came out of university with a computer science degree, actually did an internship up, up at Nike at their world headquarters, and then came into banking because I took a job at a company in Indianapolis called Baker Hill, and uh, we were actually bought by Experian and then went public with Experian and, and really was on the you know, credit side of the business, uh, working with financial institutions, building decision systems, you know, utilizing the credit bureau data to further the endeavors from the credit side. And candidly, I ended up leaving that business not wanting to work in, in banking or financial services anymore. You know, worked on building a marketing services software platform, sold that company, and then uh, got dragged back into uh, working on the consumer side of business of, of the banking world and, and building, you know, budgeting tools where I actually saw an opportunity in envelopes budgeting. And so kind of started building out a platform called MyJive, which was a horrible name. And we picked brown as our primary color, which is the worst decision you can make <laughs> as a startup. <laughs> but we ended up uh, we ended up uh, merging that company with a company called Money Desktop that uh, Ryan Caldwell uh, was building out here in Utah, and uh, you know just an amazing partnership there that bloomed into you know who we are today with MX, which is really exciting. Got it. That's that's a interesting background. And can you share a little bit more about what turned you off Experian, and then? What drew you back into the financial services? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, if you look at the banking sector in general, it's a, if you, if you look at, you know, you kind of do your analysis of like, what are we good at? Maybe what are we bad at? What should we start doing? What should we stop doing? You start doing some basic analysis. The sector in general is fantastic at reducing risk, but you know, for a, for a 25 year old, a kid out of university that wants to change the world, reducing risk is not where you invest all of your time. You want to you want to go out there and, and do bold things. And so there was an interesting, you know, wave that was crashing as as kind of, you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these software entities were redefining what it is to offer software out to consumers. And so, you know, there was a time in my lifetime, I mean, even when I was at Experian, that we were very comfortable, you know, being offline for a day out of every quarter to do a release. And, you know, kind of Google and Facebook and Twitter and these other entities brought us into this world of zero downtime, right? 100% availability needs to be necessary. And so uh, as I saw that happening and 
And I think I was emboldened by going out and, and helping to build a company and selling it. I was like, you know what? I, I can go back into banking and be more opinionated than I ever was before on the technical front and can deliver you know, pretty substantial software solutions that are going to have 100% availability, that are always going to be on, that are also going to change the lives of, of individuals. And so I, I, I wanted to be on the consumer side and particularly in the position of advocacy. Uh, that was an important you know, uh, aspect of coming back into the banking world. And I, I think it's been you know, re- a really enjoyable journey thus far. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it sounds like you got back into the banking side, sort of focused on improving the consumer's relationship with finances, um, started working on my job, merged and, and was working on what is now known as MX. Is that right? And, and then you had a, a diagnosis that sort of refocused that mission even stronger? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, about actually four years ago on my 33rd birthday. So just under four years ago, I was, I was at a dinner for my birthday and my face went paralyzed. And so I ended up going to the hospital and, you know, was being told that it's, it's, you know, fairly insignificant, but eventually that led to a stage four cancer diagnosis that, uh, you know, I was given 30 to 90 days to live. And, you know, for anybody that's, that's been in that position, that's been in the room when, when somebody says cancer, and then when they say terminal, and then when they give you a prognosis, it refocuses your entire journey. All of a sudden, your priorities seem to align differently. And, uh, you know, I happen to be up at Huntsman Cancer Institute with uh, Ryan Caldwell, who, you know, as I've said, is just in these years that we've been working together has become, you know, we've become fast friends and partners. And he was there with me. And, you know, the doctor that was talking to us said, there's nothing that we can do. He is going to die very soon. And there's, there's really nothing to go out and attempt. If you know Ryan Caldwell, he was pressing back against that pretty hard. And, uh, but at the time, I actually told the Huntsman that uh, they should put a morphine pole in my office because what I do is of substantial impact, uh, I believe, to uh, the entire world. And I think, you know, we have tens of millions of users on our platform that it changes their lives. And I think that, uh, you know, when you reflect on that and you think, what do I do with my last 90 days? I, I couldn't think of a better way to invest that time. And luckily, through a whole set of individuals who stepped in at that time, including some of our board members like Pete Kite, who I'm infinitely indebted to, stepped in at that time and, and helped connect me and Ryan with scientists across the United States. And right now I'm on my second first in human study, I take chemotherapy five days a week. Uh, I get an infusion every three weeks. Um, I actually just finished radiation on my lungs and literally an hour after we get off this podcast, I'm going up to Huntsman to get an MRI of my lungs because uh, it's time for me to have the tumors measured. Wow. Well, it's, it's inspiring that, that you're fighting so hard against it. And, and I want to come back to learn a little bit more about, you know, specifically about what you're building at MX uh, that inspired you to, you know, come back to work and, and fight for that mission. But first, 
when you receive a diagnosis of something as severe as you know you have 30 to 90 days to live how does that change the way you view your own personal finances yeah well first and foremost you don't need a 401k so you can get the really nice wine list at any restaurant <laughs> so i've had more thousand dollar bottles of wine than anybody i know now so that's a wonderful aspect of it what's called a silver lining of that journey but you know you actually really don't think about finance at all. I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the things that I thought about were how uh, do I pour myself into others as much as possible such that, you know, it, 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 I think it's the closest thing that we could say would be akin to legacy, right? It's like, how do I, how do I make sure that individuals, you know, understand maybe how I would have made decisions or how I would have, you know, done all that. And, you know, I remember that first, you know, week that I was diagnosed, things that I were worried about, about my finances was how do I donate, you know, as, as, as much as possible to any endeavor that's going to be significantly important in changing kind of the arc of humanity. And then, you know, as a co-founder of a business, one of the things that comes top of mind is, you know, I have all this equity in this business, but, you know, the way that we think about it at MX is equity is fuel for the rocket. It belongs to the people that are building and piloting the rocket. And so, you know, the, the immediate concerns were, how do I make sure that equity, uh, you know, on, on the event of, of my passing gets, gets passed to individuals, you know, the, the individuals who are working hard at the company to make sure that the world is changed. And so, you know, it's, it's working through all of those processes. And I, I don't know if equity's talked about much on this podcast, but it was definitely a primary concern of mine. And uh, to, to make sure that that fuel gets put in the hand of the individuals that can change the world. So that's really a part of that estate planning, I guess I would say. Yeah, it, we, we don't talk too much with founders on the podcast about their equity, but but that's definitely interesting to hear. And you know, it's interesting to hear you have these thoughts about your own finances, uh, and then being actually in a position building a platform to um, sort of put some of those pieces together for others. So, can you talk a little bit about MX, what you guys are doing today, and who you're working with, some of the challenges you're you're aiming to solve? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you kind of look at, at it from a macro level, there's been this there's been this kind of proliferation of computation in, in many, many, many industries. And so you'd say, how do you focus computation on this industry and how does it make it better? And, and kind of the last two you know, major industries that that applies to is really healthcare and finance. And I got to be at the, the, the crossroads of both of those. But when it comes to the finance side, there's a proliferation of data that's coming about. All of a sudden, everyone's carrying a, a computer around with them, and there's data and there's metadata related related to that that's happening all the time. And so there was this, uh, you know, thesis that we had, which was to be able to help individuals make sense of that, because usually there's a ton of data. And there's not a really good way to, to visualize that and make sense of it. And, and really, in a way, you know, I, would, I, I like to talk about, you know, 
bell curves of human behavior quite a bit, right? And, and, and I think budgeting in general is, is a bell curve. There's, you know, a small percentage of the population who are uh, very rigid about it. And there's a small percentage of the population that have too much money to care. And, but in the middle, uh, you know, there's these individuals that aren't going to spend all their time budgeting because it's not an effective use of their time or they don't have the, the discipline to have that happen, but also don't have so much money that they don't have to care about it. And so there's this idea of, you know, visibility. And so what does visibility do when, when you're changing behavior around finance? And then also what does what we start to call intelligent automation, right? If on the road to fully automated finance, there's going to be intelligent automation because right now fully automated finance is primarily available to very wealthy individuals, right? But it's not really fully automated. There's just somebody who's willing to do all of the work and move all of the money and make all the things happen to sustain that wealth. And so we're, we're kind of coming into that curve and saying, let's, let's deliver tools that allow the visibility of budgeting, but also not require the type of commitment that it takes to use, you know, one of the, the tools that you can, you know, pull in and, and manage your entire life in. But, you know, most people don't have that type of time to invest in it. And so how do you how do you bridge that gap with some intelligent automation, you know, with some visibility tools, with some ability to for people to tell you directionality, but not necessarily precision, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I understand. You know, one saying we, we hear a lot is what doesn't get measured doesn't get improved. So I would imagine visibility, measurement, you know, play a huge role in just helping to engage individuals and understand you know, what they can improve. So what, what are some of the, you know, metrics or, or categories you're looking at in a consumer's life to, to sort of help improve? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, we, we look at just kind of basic visibility. And then with, with anything, I think that's going to get any type of adoption or engagement, there also has to be some novelty in it, right? So we, we kind of fancy ourselves somewhat as, you know, visualization or user interface people that inject a little bit of novelty, but also inject something different into that experience. I mean, one of the canonical cases that we talk about around here a lot is in, in the fat, meaty center of the American public, everybody's going to have a mortgage. And so your net worth, it taken into account everything, is generally going to be pretty low and probabilistically negative for a substantial swath of the American public. And so when it comes to visualizing net worth, you know, showing absolute numbers and piling on with this idea of like using, you know, visual indicators like the red that we put in these graphs and things like that, only are, are shown to actually be a greater burden on the general consumer because they don't want to log in and look at it because it's a little bit depressing. And so how right. do you, yeah, how do you move kind of those, you know, psychological, maybe behavioral uh, mechanisms and turn them into, you know what, if you saved $10 last week, more than you had the week before, then like, that's actually good. Even if your network net worth is still negative $450,000, you're directionally moving, you know, correctly. And so how do you, 
you know, there's a whole, you know, thesis about pulling apart all of those sections for people that are in the need of managing debt. How do you provide them proper incentive to, to push them forward? Now, once they've kind of captured managing debt, how do you then provide the proper visibility and insight into then creating savings, right? Because there's, you know, there's the, the problem of, of managing debt, there's a problem of creating savings, and then there's a problem of creating wealth. And those have, you know, largely been like three big swaths of the, the retail banking industry. And I think um, they bleed into one another quite a bit. They require kind of a different set of indicators. And so I'd say we're, we, we largely play amongst that spectrum, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, it sounds like you're combining this technology and data collection component with a little bit of behavioral economics to, you know, impact consumers' lives for, for the positive. In your, your business model, you work with banks ultimately serving consumers or, or you, sh- you work with financial institutions. So how, how do you balance the needs of both the consumer and the financial institution? And do you work together with the financial institution to come to, to products for the consumer? Do you get user feedback from consumers? How do you sort of build out for, for everyone's success? Absolutely. I would say all of the above, right? And then, you know, we work with the banks to deliver the best experiences that uh, that they want to deliver out to different channels and out to different, you know, audiences. And But we also work with banks to work with the end consumers on A-B testing and on user feedback. And, you know, there's a whole uh, ecosystem as, as a part of our design team that is just focused on, you know, you're, we're talking about tens of millions of individuals. And so just focused on, you know, getting individuals to offer feedback and, you know, incentivizing the ability to sit down with them. And even if, even if it is uh, virtually and be able to gather that feedback and, and kind of have some goal-based user testing within the, within the pieces of software that we end up building. But we think that, Fundamentally, uh, the industry is moving towards this strategy of advocacy because there's an incredible amount of choice and the cost of switching is going down and down as we have more digital experiences. And so as that happens, um, you know, there has to be this strategic change in advocacy. And, and, you know, everybody that we work with is saying, yeah, we actually think that advocacy is at the center. I mean, the canonical example that, you know, we like to use here at MX is if I go search on Amazon for something that they don't sell, they're actually going to tell me who sells it and who sells it the best, who has the highest rating, because they want to make sure that anytime I go search for anything, it's done on their site. And so they're the ones that, that get the first look at it because there's metadata just around the idea of the, that search. Well, the same is true for many other industries, including the financial industry of uh, if you have that trusted relationship with your financial institution, then there should be a willingness to ask for the products that you want at the price points that you believe are reasonable. And that conversation should be a conversation that every institution should, should desire to have, because once they're at the center 
of that financial life and helping that individual, they're going to see more opportunities than they would see otherwise. Yeah, and so you know, being in the in the fintech industry, I think folks tend to have a pretty sour impression of of you know bankers and and what they're goals are. Um, have you ever had an experience where you thought you were building a product for the betterment of the consumer's life and, and the banks fought you on it? No, it's kind of crazy. Like, no, not a single instance that I can recall here at MX, because if ever it comes down to doing what's right for the bank or right for the consumer, Maybe we just have good enough relationships. Maybe we just have high enough in the organization relationships. But, you know, I can I can name people off the top of my head who would always make the decision that benefits the consumer, even as it potentially costs that financial institution more money or more concern or whatever that is. Like, you know, I just it, it's it's blown my mind what being bold and leading you know, with, with purpose and letting money follow has manifest in the journey of MX. Like it's simply amazing because I would have been cynical about it as well. I had some cynical experiences at Experian and, and I would have been cynical about it, but my cynicism has been taken away with the experiences that I've had at MX. That's, that's great to hear. Has that emboldened you to, to push further uh, for for the consumers and for what you guys are trying to do? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a question. And and it's not only, you know, em, emboldened me, but I think there's a, you know, there's a cadre of people that are in the industry, you know, that are even CEOs at banks or credit unions uh, that are, that are more emboldened uh, by the idea that it is a conversation that they can now reasonably take to their board and defend, you know, one of the things that you have to do as a, as a company that's kind of, I guess I would say pitching a new business model for kind of a classic industry, right? And saying, you know, this, this business model works, you have to track a ton of data around it. And so you have to have the analytics that says, you know, that is a customer that we want and we have a good and profitable relationship and it is a win-win-win. There aren't people that are losing in that. You have to have a ton of analytics around that. So that's part of, you know, what we do along that front. And, and I have been overwhelmed with how I have seen institutions uh, catch on to that. And quite frankly, I mean, you know, one of the things that I, I like to talk about a lot is like, this profession is very noble. You know, if you look up banking on Wikipedia, uh, the first bank in uh, the Western world is what we actually call the Knights Templar. And to be a banker is part of the Knights Templar. You had to take a vow of poverty. And so there was this amazing recognition at the beginning of this field about the nobility and the stewardship of that position. And it was a lifelong vow of poverty. And so it's truly an, an incredible side. And so, you know, nobody these days is being asked to take a vow of poverty, but we certainly are taking a position of stewardship in our communities and in our country and in our world that, that makes it so we must be advocates first and profit 
is something that goes back into the engine to invest on behalf of everyone that's out there. I think there's just, you know, every, I, every so many people, I, I say so many people, I can't think of anyone on the other side, but everyone that I've talked to understands that position and understands that nobility um, in this industry. And it, and quite frankly, if they don't understand that, if it's a predatory company, we're not going to do business with them, right? Yeah. Like it's just, it's not something that you should chase. Right, right. The the, the profit goes back to to meet the equity that, that you and the founders hold to sort of um, do good for the employees and the, and the consumers. So what are some of the things in the product pipeline that you're most looking forward to pushing out? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this thing right now that, that we've called Pulse, which is the ability to kind of automate uh, this idea of kind of predictive uh, cash flow and predictive event series that allow you to see things that, you know, computation does well and humans don't do well, right? I mean, that's the core of the problem of software providers, pick problems that computation does well and humans don't do well and separate those problems uh, efficiently. And so, you know, I'm really excited about rolling that out an incredible scale. I'm also really excited about, um, you know, we're, we've been working on something for, you know, some time now that is a companion app that can be on your phone that we're calling internally the kids app. And basically it's a companion app with your mobile banking app that allows you to begin to to teach, you know, not only kids, but teens about, you know, financial stewardship and what comes along with that. And it's, you know, I think it's a terribly important aspect of our society that we need to be building generations of great people and great kids and teens that are able to come and, and be great stewards of that responsibility. And so, you know, I'm really excited about that. Man, there's just being part of a software company, particularly in fintech at this day and age, there's so many things that it's uh, ridiculously hard to choose just one. But, you know, those are a couple things that are on top of my mind all the time. Got it. It's, it sounds good. And last question for you, Brandon. Uh, there's been news recently, I'm sure you saw about the Google checking account. Just wanted to ask you as someone on the data side of, of building banking platforms, you know, people talked about Google entering the banking space really for the data collection. What's your take on Google's checking account? What can they do with the data that's different from what you guys are doing today? Is it, is it a threat? Is it good for you guys? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> banking on the surface of it, when tech companies look at it, I mean, Amazon did this head fake as well, right? And, um, you know, when tech companies look at it, they say, oh, that's a problem that computation can solve. Banking is not a problem that computation solves, right? Like it, it is a, it has an enormous amount of regulation and compliance. You know, immediately when I heard about the Google checking account, I immediately thought, well, that's going to be a problem because people are going to sign up for it. And here in the United States, you know, no financial institution can have more than 9% of the consumer public be a member of their institution. And so immediately, like in, in four days of rollout, all of a sudden they're going to be running up against that number. And so this is going to be a problem. And so that's where I have, 
after being in this system for a majority of my career, I think this has happened a lot. I'm actually really excited about some of the things they may extrapolate as a result of their partnerships with institutions if it eventually comes into fruition. But having been in it for a long time, I know that like deeply technical technology companies tire out easily in heavily regulated and compliance spaces. And so I'm going to guess that it's going to tire out pretty easily because there are not the margins and efficiencies that you would classically believe that a software business build. That doesn't happen in this space because the chief charge of any financial institution is to prevent pandemonium. If you look over the you know, 250-year arc of the United States, the number of times that we have had runs on banks that have caused serious stresses on our government is incredible. And so the chief charge of a financial institution is not technology. It is preventing pandemonium. And, uh, you know, there is no ability to concentrate that uh, in a place that may have reach to every household, because if there is a technical problem or a technology problem or a support problem, I mean, I've tried calling Google before and support is not easy to get through. It's going to be an issue. And so there's a lot of bases to cover before, uh, before we see something come into fruition in a substantive way. Got it. Well, I, I appreciate that take. Brandon, we're, we're running up on time. Any last thoughts? Uh, I just think that life is so beautiful. I just love seeing so many different ideas in this space and uh, just appreciate everything that, uh, that your team is doing to manifest these ideas in, in the public conversation because it's, it's only through the experimentation and the number of ideas that we spin up that we create a better world. And so I just think that's a great thing. Yeah, Brandon, I appreciate your time today. I, I appreciate your perspective and, uh, you know, wish you best luck uh, later on in, in your uh, uh, battle against cancer. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at currencycloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.